Lord, this morning before we engage you in your word, or through your word, I want to lift up two specific uh, people, I guess. I want to first pray for our governor. Um, Lord, as we are praying for our officials and um, those who are in authority because you've placed them there, we want to pray that you'll be glorified through the way they serve. Lord, I pray that uh, our governor will see that he was not uh, elected, but that he was placed there by you and your design. Maybe through election, but that ultimately you were enthroned and you were sovereign over that work. I pray that as he is um, um, campaigning right now, Lord, we pray that he will still be faithful to his job as governor. We pray that his, the decisions that he makes and the things that he puts into motion will be things that will bring glory to you and that will give us opportunity to further the kingdom. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another pastor and his wife. I want to pray for Rick and Julie Prettyman and for another church, for Aldersgate Church. Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified through that marriage first. I'm going to put that marriage in front of you first and pray that that will be, I guess, the most immediate soil for worship for Rick and Julie both, that they can enjoy you and enjoy the gospel by the way they love each other and the way they walk with each other and the way they serve each other. Pray that Rick and Julie's kids will see what the gospel looks like by the way that Rick and Julie treat each other. And Lord, I pray that that will spill over onto a people so that a people see the gospel in motion. I pray that another effect will be that Rick is fueled each week with worship as the fuel that you will guard his heart as you would guard mine and every other pastor in this community from this ever being a J-O-B. Lord, we pray that this church, Aldersgate Church, will be fueled by worship and wonder and awe. Pray that each week they'll be stirred up by way of reminder. They'll marvel at your greatness and your glory and your goodness and your gospel, the great salvation delivered to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning for an attentiveness here, an engagement here that is beyond what we're capable of, but something that's fueled by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I pray for a clarity of speech, thought, movement through your word that will bring glory to you as we engage and enjoy you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to try and expeditiously get us to the meat of this sermon, but I need to do some preliminary sort of work to get us in context. We've been... Did we miss our video? I just realized. Did I walk up in the middle of the... when the video was going to run? We can show that after the sermon. It's a, just an, a, a family that's learning this, this scripture. I encourage you. This is a great opportunity to memorize the book of Hebrews. That may seem and sound insurmountable, but it's not when you're moving at the pace that we're moving. So we've been in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 2 the last few weeks. We will stay in those first four verses for the next, for today and the next two, unless the Lord comes back or takes me home or whatever. That's the plan anyway. Today we're going to deal with the first of a two-part argument for paying close attention. 
sort of the centerpiece of this first four verses, and really I would say the centerpiece of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, is the first verse of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. That is a key passage for understanding this book so far. He's laid the foundation for who Christ is. Christ is heir, creator. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He is sustainer. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's ruler and he's redeemer. And oh, by the way, he's way superior to the angels. He's established all that. And he says, therefore, in light of all that, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And what they had heard is not only the message from Jesus, but the message about Jesus. He spoke sunwise in the sun. He spoke in sunglish. He spoke about the sun, and the sun was the messenger. We must pay much closer attention to that sunwise message, lest we drift away from it. And drifting away from it meaning drifting away from this sun, drifting away from this message, and drifting away from what is later in this verse we're going to look at today called a great salvation. Because of who he is, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. This is the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you right now, they're all dangerous. Had a little text message string with uh, Terry Sadler. He may not be here this morning. He may be in the woods hunting. It was funny. He texted me asking me about something in Hebrews 6 and connecting it to a, connecting it to a passage in Romans. And I texted him back and I said, Freeze, put your hands up, and step away from the Bible. <laughs> it's some dangerous, dangerous stuff. And I'm feeling the danger of it, and I want us to be faithful to what's being said here by this Hebrews preacher. However dangerous it may be, it matters. I think one of the most troubling things for folks so far has been the notion of someone falling away from the faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? I think for many of us, the paradigm has been sort of instilled into us and built into us, instilled in us and built into us of this thought that if someone, maybe they don't go to church anymore, but I've heard the phrase said over and over again. I bet you've heard it, and maybe you've said it. At least they're saved. They're not walking with God anymore, but at least they're saved. This notion of drifting is sort of a new thought for us, and it's scary. It's frightening. I found this, this series of passages this week. Just listen. This, this is just preliminary work. The end of Colossians, Paul mentions a guy named Demas. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. He's in sort of his final thoughts there at the end of the letter. Oh, Demas says hi. That's basically what he's saying. A few books later, at the, uh, in the, the short book Philemon, he ends that letter saying this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. 
Okay, so you got this picture. You don't know what the guy looks like, but you can imagine this guy named Demas who's hanging out with Paul, who's a fellow servant working with Paul. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, you know what? Paul's nearing the end of his life. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You guys ever known a Demas? Is your heart broken right now thinking about maybe a Demas that's walked away from the faith, that's fallen in love with the wrong world? It happens. Hebrews warns against it. Many warnings that will keep us quickened and engaged if we heed those warnings, all the while realizing they're not empty threats. That's not like our God. But they are very real possibilities. Demas is a great example of an apostate. Now, where we're going to go this morning is we're going to sort of climb into verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. And we're going to engage the first argument or the first part of a two-part argument for paying close attention. You may feel like he's already made the case, and in some ways he already has, because he says, for, it started out, therefore, pointing back to who Jesus is. Just based on who he is, we should pay close attention. But in case that wasn't a substantial enough argument, he continues on with this first word in verse 2, for. So you know he's continuing the argument. And the first part of this two-part argument is where we're going to be this Sunday and next. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving... We're going to be on the second part of that argument. Okay, so that's a big picture view of where we're going to be. This morning, we're going to be in the first part of this argument, and here it is. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's where we're going to be this morning and next week. How shall we escape? if we neglect such a great salvation. Now, let me just briefly address this message declared by angels thing. Hebrews really gives more time than any other New Testament book that I've engaged to to angels, more airtime. And I think this is connected to their notion of who was a mediator or a messenger of the law. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to give this just a brief moment. You may remember whenever we began the book of Hebrews, I told you that the Hebrews author and the Hebrews readers were using what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The other Old Testaments are, the original Old Testament is in Hebrew. But these guys lived not in Jerusalem or Israel, but they lived in what's called the Diaspora or the Roman Empire. Likely the guys that are reading this live in Rome. They're called Hellenistic Jews. And they read, as we, many of you read, the ESV, they read the LXX, the Septuagint. And the Septuagint in the Greek sort of emphasizes, I'll just share these passages with you in case you're just interested. I'm not even going to go there. Deuteronomy 33.2 and Psalms 68.18 seem to, in Greek sort of emphasize the role of the angels in the delivery of the law at Sinai. So that's why this author is saying the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. He's talking about the law delivered from God 
But he, because he's seeing it through the lens of this Septuagint in the Greek language, he's seeing an emphasis on the role of the angel. So we need to kind of climb into that and understand what he's talking about there. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments and all that came after that that's connected to that law. To some degree, this explains why angels get so much airtime in this book. They believe they were messengers of the law of Moses. So when you see the message declared by angels, you can put a little equal sign in your Bible or in your head. This equates to the law of Moses or the commandments of the Old Covenant. Okay, those are synonymous. Now, for the first part of the argument, where we're going to be this morning, this first part of this argument comes from this verse and the first part of verse 3, and it's called an a minori ad maus argument. I share that for some of you L3 guys, engineer types that really like to get into some crazy facts. It's not important. It's just I want you to understand what this argument is. This guy was a master at rhetoric, this author. And he's using a type of argument that is called a minori ad maus. It means from lesser to greater. Here's an example that's more in my terms. It would be like making the argument. If I'm telling my son or daughter, either of my sons or my daughter, if you're going to get in trouble, I guess this would be my sons, Luke and Daniel, you're going to be in some serious trouble for yelling at your sister. That's a given, but that's a lesser to how much worse it will be if you talk back and yell at your mother. That's a lesser to greater argument. I'm using rhetoric with my kids there, and they're hopefully understanding that they're not to yell at their sister, and especially not to yell back at their mother. Uh, here's another example. It would be like the consequences for failing a test being grave. That can, a lot of us can relate to that. Maybe even some current students, kids, you're thinking about, man, I don't want to fail a test. That's bad news. How much worse will it be then for failing an entire class? You're moving from lesser to greater. And the lesser here that this Hebrews author is using is the reliability of the law. The reliability of God in the law. The reliability of God applying the consequences of transgressing the law. If the law and God in it proved seriously reliable, and if under the law Nobody escaped God's eye and his judgment, and punishment was received. How could anyone think they'd escape the same God under an even greater salvation? It's an important argument, and it's one that I've never encountered in our New Testament. Now, y'all know if you've been with us at Crosspoint for a period of time, we've been in John for a large part of our journey. I've never encountered this sort of teaching and this sort of argument in John. He's calling what is delivered through the angels reliable. And he's saying as evidence of that, every transgression and disobedience received an, a, a just retribution, received exactly what was due, just or righteous or rightful or fair retribution. Retribution means recompense. 
Every transgression and disobedience received a just, a righteous, a rightful, a fair retribution, a recompense. That's how it was reliable. And that's the lesser of what's in store for those who neglect this salvation we're walking in. I've never encountered that. In fact, for me, honestly, frankly, it's been the opposite. I've looked at those under the law and under the old covenant and thought to myself, man, I sure am glad I didn't live in those days because God did not play. I mean, you ever thought that? You read some of these stories. We're going to look at some of them today. God was not playing then, implying that he's somehow playing now. I'm confessing my own notions. Man, this is a traumatic sermon for me. It's not a sugar stick sermon, let me tell you mentioning sugar stick sermons last week. This is not a sugar stick sermon. This is not a church growth sermon. In fact, I would call it a church refinement sermon. Now, what I want to do this morning is the first part of this first argument. We'll look at the second part next week. I want us to look at the lesser. If he moves from the lesser to the greater, we cannot fully appreciate the greater if we haven't first engaged the lesser part of the argument. If the lesser is not in focus, then the greater will never be in focus. So we're going to deal with in the next few minutes, how reliable was the message declared by angels? In some ways, in the next few minutes, we're going to sort of have to be Jewish so that we can climb into the mind of the Hellenistic Jew so that we, our minds will go to where they would have gone as the Hebrews author, writer, preacher is making this argument. We have to be sort of Jewish and be able to go directly to what he's talking about of the reliability of the law in order to get the point. So that's where we're going to spend today, considering the reliability of the message declared by angels. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> I have a plan to examine the reliability of this message declared by angels. And I want to look at three things. First of all, fear. Second of all, death. And third, follow through. Fear, death, and follow through. Where I want to go first is Exodus chapter 19. I want to go to the place where this message that was declared by angels was delivered at Sinai. That's where we are. We're not just going there in the Word. I want us in some ways to go there in our imaginations and to take on some of the drama of this hour. And I say hour, it's a time in the life of this people when God showed up and He declared His law to His people. I want you to take in the environment. I want you to take in the sights, the sounds. I want you to take in even the feel. And I want you to be prepared for quite a light show when and where this message was delivered. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse, halfway verse 2. <clears throat> there Israel encamped before the mountain, that's Sinai. <clears throat> While Moses went up to God. Let me clear my throat, hold on. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him, out, or called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and delivered you, or brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came, and he called all the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the moment in the wedding where the wife turns to the husband and she says, I do. That's what's just taking place right here, covenant. And the Lord said to Moses, down to verse 9, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Jump to verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, watch these two words, take care. Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. That's with a bow and arrow, obviously. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. And oh, by the way, don't go near a woman. It's kind of funny. He's saying, Don't come up to this mountain because a holy God's about to show up on this mountain. And you have to be consecrated even, only even just to come close to this mountain. And he's given, th- given them some instructions. That, thank you. I'm not sure it's going to help, but thank you anyway. Appreciate you, bro. He said, I'm giving you some instructions that I want you to follow for your own sake. I want you to take care. It's not a threat. It's here. I want to protect you from my holiness. So take care not to come up and touch this mountain. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, we've got to climb into this and take on some of the sights and the sounds. If you've ever been in an earthquake, you know that that can be pretty alarming, pretty frightening. My first and only earthquake was in Southern California, 1990-something, back when L.A. was damaged. I was living just up the road in San Clemente. In the middle of the night, it scared me to death. Take in the sights and the sound and the quaking earth And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. He's speaking about his holiness. He's not going to be mean. His holiness is that consuming for sinful, fallen man. And he's saying, Take care 
that you're not consumed by my holiness. And then God speaks in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Sort of the foundational truth. And then there's the Ten Commandments. And let's see how the people receive these words. It might think that they're singing kumbaya and holding hands. But let's look at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and had to change their drawers. I mean, let's take it in. They're not just words on a page. This happened. And they said to Moses, Hey, Moses, can you speak to us instead of this Yahweh? I only have an extra set of underwear. I mean, seriously, this scared them to death. You speak to us and we'll listen. But please don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The first thing I want to consider in just in the context of where this message delivered by angels was provided or delivered is that it was an environment of fear. And you see in that passage right there, there is a connection between fear and obedience. An indirect relationship between fear of God, a good fear, and sin. Do not fear. That's a different kind of fear what he's about to say. For God has come to test you that the fear of him, that's a good fear, may be before you that you may not sin. You see relationship there? You fear God, indirect relationship to you disobey him. You fear him, the less you sin. There's a principle at play here where fear of God increases, sin decreases. This is of the things I want to engage this morning. This is probably the most difficult to engage because it's so underdeveloped for us. I was trying to think, Christy and I were talking about this, and all week I've been trying to think about this, trying to think of in our culture an example of obedience resulting from fear that's actually approved. If you're like me, you're sitting here right off the bat probably thinking, I don't want people to obey out of fear. I want my children to obey me out of respect. I want my employees, if you're a boss, you're thinking, I want my employees to obey me or to follow my instructions. You may not use that word. Out of respect. You want people to obey because they are honoring you. You want people to obey so they will find value in obedience and meaning in obedience. And while all of these are fuel for obedience, it seems as if fear is jet fuel. It is actually a source of obedience. And it seems, though, that our aversion to it doesn't even really give room for it in faith. I, I struggle with this all week. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, speaking about another preacher, or maybe they come, came on a couple of Sundays that were sort of sedate here, and they said, man, I sure like that you're not a hellfire and brimstone preacher because I don't like hellfire and brimstone preaching. You may have said that. You may have thought that. 
And when I'm hearing that or I'm thinking that, I'm thinking, well, if this preacher doesn't preach about the realities of hell along with the beauties of heaven, then he doesn't preach a lot of what Christ said and taught. Because Christ talked about it a lot. I think we have a natural aversion to fear. Yet our Bibles develop the reality of it and the importance of it. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. It's just the start, but it's an important start. If you don't fear Him, you're not going to obey or hear or find any wisdom. Ecclesiastes sums up the whole book, a book on defining or developing the meaning of life. It sums up the book and says this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. Fear is underdeveloped for me and underdeveloped, I fear, in our context. Where my mind went automatically is to this passage in 1 John chapter 4. Just listen, because I'm already there. There is no fear in love. Familiar passage? Anybody think in this passage we're talking about fear and faith? There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's where my mind automatically went, where I'm seeing the fear of where this Hebrews writer is going. And I'm saying, I have a discomfort with that. And what I didn't realize is that that's a different type of fear. The fear of punishment is never what God's approving. That's the part where he says, do not fear. Where Moses says, do not fear. For the fear of the Lord, a reverent fear is good. Perfect love and reverent fear for who we're talking about go together. Paul says this to the Philippian church. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more in my absence. And here's the the follow-on or the connection to obedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he's talking about here is this the right kind of fear, this reverent fear that goes with obeying him, which indirectly goes with thumbing your nose at him, is the fear of realizing he's not Santa. We're talking about the living God. We're talking about one that spoke and galaxies were hung. The one who delivered them from Egypt. Remember what I did, I bore you on eagle's wings. The one who made Sinai quake just by showing up. There's a good and healthy fear of the Lord that goes with obedience. And that is the context that this Hebrews writer is pointing back to. If every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect a greater salvation? He's developing there, pointing back to a healthy fear of who we're dealing with. We're not dealing with Santa. We're dealing with the living God. I'm going to tell you this right now. If you have no reverent fear of the Lord, the Hebrews' warnings will fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. You go, Santa's not going to do that to me. That would never happen to me. That's not the God that I know. And I would argue that the God that you know is underdeveloped. He's not the God of the Scriptures. We'll develop that more in a moment. Let me show you briefly how the Hebrews' writer connects some of these fear thoughts. 
You can jot these down or you can turn there quickly. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's a good fear that goes with faith. Here's an example. Chapter 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Here it is. In reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. There's a fear that goes with faith that's got to go with continuing to hear and to heed this sunwise message. It fuels a healthy fear of the Lord. And a healthy fear of the Lord fuels hearing, fuels hearing and heeding. Here's another couple of examples. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, whether it's fashionable or not. Fear of the Lord is something that must be developed among the people of God. Obedience and fear, a proper reverent fear, go together. The second thing I want you to see, turn back to Exodus. We just considered the environment, turn back to Exodus chapter 20 specifically. We just considered the environment where this message declared by angels was delivered. And it was a earth-shaking, dramatic, drawer-changing environment. Can we agree? Santa didn't show up. He comes down a chimney and everybody jiggles and laughs. God showed up and people were going to die if they got too close. Now we're going to pick up with considering death. We're going to consider just a dab of the context, or excuse me, the content. We've dealt with the context, now let's engage the content. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, uh, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the first of four passages that we're going to look at in these next couple, couple minutes having to do with the Sabbath. We're going to pick on or isolate just one element of this message declared by angels. And we're going to look and we're going to see if it's reliable. And if it's reliable, how it's reliable. What makes it reliable? That's the first of four passages. Here's the next. Chapter 23 Verse 12. Now keep in mind that that delivery, that first one, was audible. God spoke from heaven. Remember and how that ended after that first little interchange where the, the, the top ten are shared. And this makes the top ten, by the way. Where they're going, hey, can, Moses, can you talk to us instead of him? So they heard that audible declaration and commandment. Honor and remember my Sabbath. Here's the second engagement of the passage, or the topic of the Sabbath. And this is between God and Moses in verse 12 of chapter 
24. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Now there's a temptation to look at the commandments and God's law and say they're just a bunch of things that he just doesn't want you to do. Just because he's ornery. Not realizing that it's exactly like the motive of don't get too close to this mountain. Take care. There's a ministry in the Sabbath where the ox is going to have some rest, the donkey's going to have some rest, the son of the servant woman's going to have some rest, and oh, by the way, you're going to have some rest. It's a good thing that he's declaring and commanding. Don't look at it as just a, a bad thing that you better not transgress. He is giving them, remember we engaged this last week, this is a covenant of grace. It's not a covenant of works. There's grace in this law. It's hard to imagine the two can go together, but they do. He said, this is an opportunity for you to rest. Now, here's the third engagement. Exodus, Exodus chapter 31, verse 12. This is God talking to Moses again. He says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. There it is yet again. The Sabbath means something to God. I hope you're figuring that out. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. There's a great picture of obedience and sanctification going together. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it, here's where things get grave. This is the first mention of this, of the consequences for crossing are profaning the Sabbath. For everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Death? You read the word profane and you think, well, man, somebody must really be cursing God on that day or something. You got to do something really grave that day to be put to death. Well, let's see what it says. Whoever does any work on it, that profanes it. Whoever does any work on that day, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Wow. Seriously? Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now let's look at the last engagement that we're going to look at this morning of the Sabbath. Chapter 35, verse 1. This is the second time that the people are going to hear about the Sabbath. The first time was where God spoke, mountain trembled, smoke, fire, um, everybody's scared. They hear God speak and say, honor, respect, adhere to, follow uh, the Sabbath. The second and third times were Moses hearing these words. And now Moses are a development and even the sanctions for crossing that Sabbath. And here's where that is passed to the people in chapter 35, verse 1. Moses got everybody together, that same bunch of people that heard God speak in regarding the Sabbath. He got them all together and he said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Moses has come down the mountain. He said, here's what God said. 
I did what you said. You didn't want to hear from him directly. So I went up there. I got the scoop. Here's the scoop. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Now, I got, okay, I think I can do that. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. I mean, would any of you kind of looked at his neighbor and gone, what? He's going to put us to death if we do any work on that one day of the week? That seems a bit extreme. I mean, what if I need to stoke my fire? What if I need to go gather some eggs or something? I don't know. I'm just thinking all the things they might have done. What if I need to do some work? I need to clean the kitchen or something. And he says, you shall, not, you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath. You do no work that day. The sanctions were clearly communicated for transgressing God's law. They are very clear, albeit grave. Right? You kindle your fire on the Sabbath, and the consequences are death. If you're thinking that's extreme, then you have to go back to the very beginning where he says, don't eat from that tree. And Eve takes a bite and passes it to her husband. He takes a bite, and the consequences are what? Death for human humankind. The reason they seem extreme for us is because we don't understand the nature of sin or the nature of holiness. We're like, God, come on. Take it easy. That's overkill. It's just a piece of fruit. It's just a fire. It's just a day of the week. What we have to see, if we're going to engage where the Hebrews writer is taking them, we have to see that this is the just retribution he's talking about. God's not Santa. He's not our jolly old grandpa wearing an old man t-shirt, drinking cocoa. Come on up in my lap, kitty. We're talking about a holy God. And sin is that grave. This is just retribution. It is righteous recompense. And the only reason it seems harsh for us, we have to be really honest and look at it through the lens of the Scripture, is because we have a low view of what God says, potentially. We have a low view or no view of holiness. And honestly, what goes along with that is we have an elevated view of man. We see him as like a peer or something. Well, how could you do that? Or maybe just a couple steps above being a peer. Well, how could you do that, God? And we're also not seeing accurately the wages of sin, where he says the wages of sin is death, or the consequences of sin, that it's that damaging. And we look at it, and we may say, man, that's just not fair. It doesn't fit my version of fair. But we have to realize our version of fair must be developed by God's version because he is ultimately justice, not what we think is just. And he is holy. He is righteous. He defines it. Transgress his law. Just retribution is death. I didn't read a number of other passages that come right after that, but here's a few of them. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Okay, that seems fair. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. 
Oh. What? Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Oh, curses, just curses his mom and dad. Death. Whoa, just a piece of fruit. It's just kindling a fire. Here's one, a good life one, dealing with the definition of life and when it begins. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fine, and the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. That's life in that womb. It's not a bunch of tissue. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's just retribution. That's the reliability of what was declared by angels. That's reliable. The whole rest of the book of Exodus is like that. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's all like that. Now, turn to Numbers chapter 15. Now we're going to find out really about follow-through. Is this message really reliable? It sounds like the sanctions are pretty grave and serious. But is it reliable in that God is going to have follow-through? Let's see. Numbers chapter 15 Verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness. Okay, they've left Sinai by this point. They've heard everything Moses had to say. They've heard what God had to say at that point about regarding the, the law. They heard Sinai quake. They heard God speak. Recognize my Sabbath. Honor my Sabbath. Don't do any work on it. They heard this follow-on teaching from Moses. Don't even kindle your fire or you'll die. They've heard all those things. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. We're going to find out if God is Santa or if he's a holy God. Okay, let's see. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, see who's speaking there. The Lord said, Moses, the man who's gathering sticks out in the woods and profaning the Sabbath that I commanded you shall be put to death. Does anybody have a problem with that? I mean, really, honestly, does anybody uncomfortable with that? Like, God, seriously, come on. Maybe he was cold. Maybe his little wee ones were cold. It was a cold night, and he didn't have any wood because he had a busy week, and he didn't get out and pick up some firewood. So there it is, the Sabbath. It was all he could do. God, it would be like, uh, well, you know, Eve was hungry. And all those other trees with fruit, they weren't nearby. And this one was the closest. So it was just convenient, God. Well, let's see what God said. The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Man, 
seriously, I look at that and I'm thinking, God, that seems excessive. But really, let's ask the question, what does this say about our God and the message declared by angels? It says it's reliable, if anything. Whether you like it or not, you have to say, oh, it's reliable. (laughs) He wasn't kidding. You have to look at it and say, well, he means what he says. We have to ask the question, what would it say about our God had gathering wood on the Sabbath been permissible after all? I mean, really think about it. What would it say about our God? It would say, well, maybe he's forgetful. Anybody want a forgetful God? I don't want a forgetful God. It might say that he's lenient and that he winks at sin and he doesn't value his own ways and his own laws. I don't want that God either. Because how do I know when he's going to wink and when he's not? And by definition, holiness says he's not going to wink. It might say that he's not just if there's no just retribution. I mean, think about it. It might say he's Santa, after all. He's not really Yahweh, the holy God, that showed up at Sinai with the light show. He was all show, no go. It's pretty dramatic, God, but you didn't really see it through. It's like that substitute teacher that showed up when I was in high school. A teacher shows up and she says, I'm going to lay down the law in here. You better not cross this, cross this, cross this. And then people start crossing it and kind of pushing the envelope. And you find out she's just a pushover. And they walk all over her. Anybody else ever done that? I, I was party to it. But it, our God didn't do that. If the Sabbath turns out it had been permissible to gather wood on that day after all, then it means that he doesn't mean what he says. And that the lights and the trumpets and the shaking of the earth, it was just a light show. It also means that Rob Bell is right. He's right. It's all good. There's no hell. (laughs) Man, it's all good. Don't worry about those kind of things. There's no such thing as drifting. You'll never hear the words, I never knew you. Come on. That's excessive. Don't read that Hebrews writer. He's over the top. There's no such thing as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's all good. But this, what you're seeing in motion here, was a just retribution, and it proved the message declared by angels is reliable. I'm thankful that we don't have a God that said, okay, wood gathering dude, I'm going to count to three. Put those sticks down. Okay, wood gathering dude, are you cold? Well, then it's okay to transgress my law. You chilly. You had a busy week. It's okay. I'm thankful that that's not our God. It would be like, oh, Eve, you're hungry. It's okay. Take that fruit. It would be like the local law enforcement coming upon a guy, breaking in your home, and the guy says, hey, man, I lost my job, and I have no money, and say, oh, it's okay then. Take what you need. Right? 
Conditional transgression? Do you want that from your God? I don't want that from my local police force, much less from my God. Seriously. I want a God that has follow-through, that means what he says. This is a great picture right here. And what happened to this guy? That his message declared by angels is reliable. And every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. We want that kind of God. Now, some of you may not. I think in all of us, there's something that doesn't want that kind of God. But let me show you a guy that really didn't like that. The next chapter is a story of a man named Korah. And Korah's story is sort of connected to the role of the priest, but in proximity in this story, in this book, I just can't help believe that it's connected in some way to the stoning of this dude just picking up sticks. I wonder if this guy out picking up sticks wasn't Korah's buddy from high school or something. He was my friend, man. We were Facebook friends. And you guys were wrong. That was over the top. Listen to what happens to Korah. Chapter 16. I'm going to read excerpts, so I'll be jumping and moving. Korah, the son of Ezar, son of Kohath, son of Levi. Korah was a Levite. What you need to know about Levites is that all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And Korah is an example of a guy that wasn't a priest, but he was a Levite. And basically, Korah is making the argument, who says you call the shots? We should all be priests. It shouldn't even have to be Levites. Listen to what happens. Um, Korah, the son of Ezar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and the son and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. I just cannot believe that's not connected to what happened just previously. You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy. Really? Every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and who will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. Jump down, jump down to verse 11. Therefore, it's against the Lord you and all your company have gathered together. And against his design. We're going to define holiness. Not God. I'm going to define what day I take off. Not God. I'm going to determine when I'm going to stoke my fire. Not God. I'm going to determine what piece of fruit I eat. Not God. That's exactly what's taking place here. So in verse 16, Moses says to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take a censer and put incense in it. And let every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. 
And then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the congregation. About that time, a tumbleweed rolled by right in front of the tent of meeting. And you heard that whistle. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said to Aaron, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits and of all flesh, shall one man sin and will will you be angry with the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I don't know what happened to On, but he must have changed his mind about the whole deal. And then Moses rose and went to Dothan, or Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the tent, the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die or if they're visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, something that you've never seen before, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol... Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And guess what else, what else you'll know? You'll know that the Lord God is reliable. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them and burped. And they perished from the midst of the assembly, and all Israel who were around them fled at their their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. This is a just retribution for crossing our God. Is it show his reliability? Absolutely. As the earth burps, God has proven reliable. Man, God proves reliable. There's so many other proofs in this old covenant, this old story, in this Old Testament, if we but read it. I had a funny story. This, first, I found out about this was a few months ago. We have a family at Cross Point that their son, Noah, this is Noah's Bible, my favorite Bible storybook for early readers. And it's cool. It's got little kid pictures and stuff on the front, little short stories inside. And it was a Sunday where we just happened to mention um, Hosea and Gomer. If you've, if you've read that, that book, you know it's a story of whoredom. And little Noah said, hey, uh, Mommy, um, I'm looking through my, 
I'm looking through my table of contents. I mean, he, he wasn't going this far, but I'm putting words in his little mouth. I'm looking through my table of contents, and I don't see that story. And I said, man, I want to see that Bible. And so I looked at that Bible this week, and I really don't see anything in here about Korah. I don't see anything in here about the dude picking up wood on the Sabbath. I don't see anything in here about Zimri and Cosby. Anybody know that story? The Israelite who's marrying the foreign woman, Cosby, the Midianite woman, after God said, don't do that. And he's parading through the camp with his endless love. Anybody remember that movie, Brooke Shield? I'm just hearing the music play, endless love, as they're parading through the camp. And Aaron's son, Phineas, it's either his son or his grandson. I think it's his grandson. His, son, his grandson, Phineas, gets a spear, and he goes into the tent, and he sticks them both through with one shot and makes a sin kebab out of Zimri and Cosby. It's not in here. Surprise. I know you're thinking it should be, but it's not. Nadab and Abihu aren't in here, who offered strange fire and became the sacrifice, sublimated into fire, into smoke, into the nostrils of God. They went freestyle and worship. Not in here. Phineas and Hophni, Eli's sons, not in here. Joel and Abijah, Samuel's sons, not in here. I haven't looked for Ananias and Sapphira, but I'd be surprised if Ananias and Sapphira are in there. And that's, by the way, that's this side of Christ. I'd be surprised if it's in there. And the reality is, the way we tend to treat some of these stories and some of these accounts, we just compartmentalize them and say, that's old news, not realizing that is Yahweh, the same God that we're worshiping now. And that he'll not be mocked. He's still a consuming fire. He's not Santa. So we don't come to these stories and quake together, tremble, developing a reverent fear so we can potentially hear these warnings like from the Hebrews writer and say, that guy, he's just too dramatic. But he says, you know what? If every retribution or every transgression disobedience received a just retribution, and if that proved reliable which I hope we're all agreeing it did we just looked at one of many stories where it proved reliable how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that's the greater if the guy gathering wood on Saturday couldn't escape a good set of laws how in the world do we think we'll escape if we neglect something even better? If Korah and his family couldn't escape God's just eye, how in the world do we think we can escape if we neglect and become indifferent to his son? Man, if there was no escape for violating God's law and the old covenant, how in the world could we possibly think that there will be escape for neglecting God's salvation under this new covenant? 
There is no room for continued indifference giving, given the greatness of this salvation. That's the, that's the point the Hebrews writer is making. There is no room for it. Frankly, I think the church becomes a mockery when we become indifferent about Christ. Our lives are no different from anyone else's. We fight, we war, we bicker, we argue about his leadership. We look like Korah and his clan. And those who don't know the Lord, they look at it and say, what is that? But when the church listens and hears and heeds this sunwise message rightly, and we are not indifferent, and this is not just something else in our schedule that we do on Sunday mornings, but it is life to us, then we hopefully become salty and bright and aromatic to those that don't know him. And they say, you know what? That is legit. That God that they worship and serve is not Santa. If the lesser comes into focus for us, then we'll see his consuming fire. We'll see his holiness. We'll see that he is just. We'll see that he is true. We'll see that he is mighty. We'll see that he is reliable and that he'll not be mocked. And we'll be hearing and heeding these warnings like we're supposed to. We all need them. We all need to hear them. We all need to heed them. I thought I would end the message with this thought, this passage. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are unfathomable are untraceable his ways. I realize that some of you that may be, this could happen to believers too, but some of you who may not be believers, and we have some here this morning, I'm sure, you may hear this about this God that we're speaking of and saying, no thanks. That's okay. I don't have to convince you. I'd like for you not to say that. Some of you who are new believers or have been believers for some period of time who've never engaged these sort of things, holiness, things like that, you may look at it and say, man, no thanks. I don't like that, God. Hopefully, a sermon like this this morning leaves us in the place where it left Paul saying, how unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable, unfathomable, untraceable are his ways. He's not in my little box. He is white, hot, holy. I read a story this week about a scout leader that was retiring the colors with his scout troop. Did anybody else read this story? Fireman, I'm surprised you didn't read this story. He used an accelerant to retire the colors. You may not know that, that there's a proper way to retire the colors, and it involves burning the flag. It's not like a flag burning, you know, hey, look at us, freedom. It's the proper way to retire the colors. He used an accelerant, and the thing, the accelerant came out and burned him bad in front of his whole scout troop. 
bad. I mean, he survived. But he said, I hope it teaches them a lesson not to use accelerants. And I'm thinking about that blaze that came out and consumed him. These are snapshots that we've engaged, some of just a few this morning, of many that we've engaged where the blaze of white-hot holiness comes out and cons- consumes people. It makes me think of the C.S. Lewis book where the Mr. Tomlin, or I think that's his name, he's looking at Aslan runoff. Is that his name, Luke? Tomlin? Tomlin? Whatever. Aslan runs off and he says, he's not a tame lion. And then the little girl says, yeah, but he's good. Our God's not tame. He doesn't operate by our little tidy standards. He is white, hot, holy. And there's a proper and reverent fear for who he is and what he said and what he's done. And one thing we can say about our God is that he is reliable. Some of the thing is you may look at some of these events in these Old Testament accounts and say, man, that doesn't happen now, so he's not reliable. And guess what? These things are coming in this life or the next. Every deed will be brought into judgment. Every single one by every single person. This isn't Santa we're talking about. I think, honestly, at times it seems and feels excessive, but that's because I think I've been conditioned to a misunderstanding of fairness, justice, and holiness. And I fear sometimes that we want a God a God of our own making that excuses our indiscretions and affirms our efforts, however lame they might be. I feel like an understanding of our sin and an understanding of His white-hot holiness is the only way to appreciate and understand the gravity of heaven and hell and the only thing that keeps us from the worst fate There was an excessive and expensive payment made for us. And the exacting eye of a holy God on sin and the punishment and retribution that we're due was meted out on our substitute. That's what we walk and live by. So there's no room to be indifferent. We're not talking about Santa. should not leave us looking for a softer version of the law but a deeper burden to live in a manner worthy of such a great salvation to hear and to heed a sunwise message let me pray Lord I pray that you will guard us from ever treating these stories these events where you worked with the people and walked with the people and revealed yourself to the people and where you proved yourself, yourself reliable that we never relegate them, them to just old and tired stories. But that we can actually understand your character. I pray that we can have a greater view of your holiness and a more accurate, accurate view of our sin and how ridiculous it is 
to treat your son indifferently. Lord, I pray that the result of engaging these sort of truths and these sort of warnings will be that you find and create and foster a people that are potent in their worship for your sake and for your glory. A people who are salty on Tuesday at the office. A people who are aromatic in their home when their marriage is in crisis where they're enjoying that sunwise message and finding fuel to love their wives even when difficult as Christ loved the church. Lord, I pray that these sort, of intru- these sort of truths and these sort of realities will invade our Tuesdays, our workspace, our kitchen, our den, our thoughts, cyberspace, the internet, Facebook, Lord, I pray for a healthy fear of you. Lord, together collectively this morning, we are thankful for the price paid, the wrath born for us in our place. We enjoy him together this morning, Christ. Amen. I think the dude in the uh, wilderness, it leaves me really troubled when I think about that guy, like if he was my dad or my brother or my friend that it might be hard to say, well, how can I love a God like that? And you may be thinking, man, how is God loving if he's reliable in the application of what he said and what he's done? And you have to land on Jesus is the only way that works. And he loves us in this way. He sent his only begotten son. So you might see the guy picking up sticks in the wilderness and say, man, that's me. And I'm saying it with you. That's me. And but for Christ, get ready to get stoned. Do you understand that what, this is developing the story so that it makes a, an argument that makes you see how ridiculous it is to take this lightly? What's been done for us in Christ is he is taking our, taking our punishment. So the problem is, if we don't engage these stories, even our wee ones, now certainly we don't need to get graphic with a little kid. I'm not encouraging that. But developing the character of a holy God with a kid, maybe that's the reason that it's so difficult for us because it wasn't developed for us. But let's start as a generation now that builds this into our kids where we have little boys like Noah that's saying, hey, wait a minute. Why isn't this in my Bible? Is this supposed to reveal to me who... No, I'm putting... I'm thinking in Noah's head, maybe developed in a few years. Is this supposed to develop for me who God is? I want to know. Less as proper parents, as the proper people of God, as adults who are walking with people, whether it's in child care, or teaching kids on Wednesday nights, or being members of one another, build this into our kids so that they see the character of our God. And they see what has been achieved for us and earned for us in Christ. So they understand things like propitiation and wrath poured out on our substitute. And then they hear warnings like the Hebrews writer and say, well, yeah, no, duh. How could we neglect such a great salvation? (laughs) It's unthinkable. I encourage you to be that people. I pray that we'll be that people.
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a video that will dis- you can just dismiss when the video is over, okay? Is the video queued up? Okay, let me pray. God, I pray, I beg you that we will be this sort of people. That take seriously what you have done and who you are. A people that are seriously engaging this sunwise message. Lord, that's the only thing. We can't do it. We can't muster it. It's something that you have to do, and we beg you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.